welcome to the One Player Podcasticus. I'm your host, Albertus, and this is episode Centum Quadrahinta Septum. Hi, Albert. Hello, Julius. Hey, how are you doing? Long time no speak. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. It's It's been it crazy. Probably it's going to happen like every six months for me, I guess. Because <laughs> when these Jewish holidays sneak up on me, I got to take off like four Surprise. days to go deal with them. That just, that, that time has to come from somewhere. Yeah. And sadly, this time it came from the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it seems like lately, I either you're not able to record on time or I'm not able to record on time or we're both not able. It's, it's just hard to, our, our bi-weekly schedule is a, it's a little bit laggy right now. We're going to work it out. Yeah. We're going to work it out. But anyway, we're glad everyone's sticking with us, coming in to listen to yet another podcast. We're going to be talking about all sorts of books today, Albert. In fact, I wanted to lead off with a book that I received over from Van Ryder Games. All right. And you have a dog barking in the background. Yeah, I can I can hear him or her. Oh, I, okay. Yeah. That has nothing to do with books, though. No, but she's probably barking at a thief or a squirrel or, or a car driving by. Maybe a kidnapper. Maybe, maybe. Like in Captive. <laughs> like in Captive, yes. That's right. So this is one of the... Uh, what? The graphic novel adventures from Van Ryder Games. Yes, which are currently on Kickstarter and, and mm-hmm. doing amazingly well on Kickstarter, by the way. Yes, and deservedly so. Um, we talked about this actually recently, Albert. Uh, you went through a couple of these. And Van Ryder Games was kind enough to send me a copy as well over the Passover holiday. I had the time, you know, all electrical devices, things like that are off. I had time to sit down and read a nice book. And I went through a lot of Captive. I actually haven't found my way all the way to the end yet. Um, but I was really enjoying it. It's I, I always enjoyed Choose Your Own Adventure games growing up and that sort of thing. I like these. Mm-hmm. And this feels very much like a Choose Your Own Adventure game with a little bit of, like, unlock the unlock mysteries put in there because there's a bit of puzzles and a bit of find the hidden numbers and put the numbers together to make another number. So it feels sort of like a mix of an unlock escape room together with a choose your own adventure. And it's pretty fun. I I really like going through it. It was very enjoyable. Um, My kids actually went through with me as well. And the first couple of times, this is possibly something that leads to taking so much longer because they have to keep restarting because they <laughs> want to keep restarting. Um, but they were enjoying it too. But as a reminder, my kids are four and seven mm-hmm. and they like going through it. Now, my seven year old liked it so much that the next morning she invited over a friend and she wanted to play it together with her friend. So she starts the right page and she goes to the right number. And I'm reading a different book over on the other couch while they're going through it. And every once in a while, I'll come and see how they're doing, or I'm just listening in. And so I hear get up to a section. So you're familiar with it. Like, as you go through it, you may find a knife. And if you go to a certain number, it says, congratulations, you've found a knife. Mm-hmm. Or you found a flashlight, or things like that. And so yep. she gets to one section that says, if you have a butcher's knife, you can go to page 147. She's like, oh, we have a butcher's knife in the kitchen. We can go to page 147, and <laughs> she's going through. And there's another section that if, if you turned off the lights, then go to this page, and she says, oh, well, it's it's Shabbos, and we don't use electricity on Shabbos, so we can't turn off the lights right now, so we have to go to the other page. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. And I'm like, oh, daughter. <laughs> 
<laughs> like I thought you got the whole concept, but good. <laughs> she's a little. And the the theme wasn't a problem at all because it, it gets pretty dark in there in that book. Um, this is the daughter who it took. She played the Arkham Horror card game with me. She had no problem with any of the theme. The only thing that grosses her out is the lucky card with that giant icky worm on it. <laughs> no, the theme wasn't a problem for her at all because for her you have all the various different kinds of bad guys that we get to shoot. You get Mm -hmm. to shoot the bad guys in the game and we have to (laughs) save Lily. We have to save the daughter. So you're right. Yeah. Okay. It's you're still playing a good guy and the bad guys are not horrific. So she's not that much of a problem with it. She doesn't mind, you know, the, the struggle and things like that. And it's not horribly bloody or anything like that. Okay, if I remember right, there's at least one section that, that was a little bit disturbing to me. Which and you section? know what? Okay, I can't ask uh, that kind of spoiler. Yeah, I'm not, not going to spoil it, and I'm not going to go back and look anyway. But, I, I mean, I played through it a couple times. I, the last time I played I think I only even played it once. I was disturbed, and I have been uncomfortable to go back to it. Hmm. Personally. <laughs> and maybe it I'm just a wuss. Seen the section. That could be. It could be that I, I'm a wuss. I have not been able to play the whole thing. And I think one of the reasons I haven't been able to play through is because it's not Shabbos friendly. And I, I fully imagine that, that this is not a high ranking problem for Van Raider games, but in terms of not being Shabbos friendly as a religious Jew. So one of the things I don't do is I don't write on Shabbos. And the main time I have for playing these kind of games is on Shabbos. And I can't write down stats. I can't keep track of the amount of time. I can't keep track of my inventory and things like that. If those things were cards or if it had a token or something like that that I could use to track those things, then I could keep track of it. But I have no way to keep track of these things. So uh, I keep on restarting because I can't remember. Did I get this? Did I not? Where was I holding? <laughs> you know, so. so eventually you'll just have memorized the whole book and that'll be fine. It could be because at one point in time I may just decide <laughs> I'll just read through the whole thing and not keep track of all that stuff and just assume I have every single item I will ever need because I'm that awesome because I've probably seen them all <laughs> at one point in time. <laughs> You know exactly where to go get it. Exactly. Yep. So yeah, so this is out on Kickstarter now. I, th- I mean, I think it's a great series, right? It's the graphic novel adventures. It, there's actually five books available in the Kickstarter. And you could back it for one book. You could back it for all the books or anywhere in between. Right? If you go for all of them, you get a slipcase. If you if you go for less, you don't. Um, and it's a better deal the more you back also, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is the... You know, you've played Captive. This is the only book that he, that that uh, AJ or Van Ryder game is publishing so far that has already been published in English. So you know, it's harder for people to play the other ones, I think. Um, but if you go online and search them up, you can find the original French ones and find pictures of them all. Actually, if you look at the Kickstarter, you'll find details. And they, they all look neat. Um, I, I Unfortunately, I can't comment on the rest because I haven't really seen them. I, I think this one is a little bit more mature right um the other ones may not be the other book i played called knights was was definitely not uh like a for mature audience specifically i mean it, it, i kind of felt a little immature playing it. <laughs> it it's very simple and lighthearted adventure but i enjoyed that one a lot i actually played that one a bunch of times and so i think all these are, are they're all going to be very neat they're going to be very different and it's just really exciting I'm really excited about this Kickstarter. 
and is doing so well so he's already raised hundred and forty seven thousand dollars for this I don't know if that's a, his biggest one yet but man that's a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> right so the good news about that though I mean it's not just that it's a lot of money and that's great but it's doing so well that uh, Van Ryder Games decided to go ahead and uh, secure the license for the entire series so they're going to keep publishing more of these these five are uh, the first five of, and more to come for sure um, and another neat thing is he's already gone ahead and, and started the printing process, getting in place, and, and not waiting for the Kickstarter to finish. Right, the books already exist; they just need to be printed. The files are already and all that sort of thing, apparently. So, just, so he's already getting that process going, which means it'll be ready really fast. You know, which I'm this, sure you're looking forward to playing as soon as it comes in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the let's see, when is the uh, delivery date for this? June, right? So it's like two months away. It might be ready. No, three months away. April, May, two months away. It might be ready like early June, even, or mm-hmm. maybe who knows? Maybe even May. I I have no idea. I'm just totally guessing. So there. when do you have until it's back? You only have about two weeks from now. Thirteen days to go. It ends on the twenty fourth of April. And if you want, you can get one book for $19, or if you want the full set of five books, it's $75 without shipping. Mm-hmm. And there's also another level, right, where you could get early, or is that maybe sold out already? Mm-hmm. For $90, You're... you could get advanced shipping. Oh, there's And there's still a bunch of those left. right? You'll, you'll get all five books, and you'll get it a, a month earlier because they're going to have those flown over. So you're basically paying for that extra shipping. Is there anything else on Kickstarter drawing your interest, Albert? One other game that's interesting is Gemrush from Victory Point Games. Are are you familiar with that at all? This is actually the second edition of it. I'm familiar with the first edition. I had a chance to play it even some. I don't own a copy, but I borrowed it. I remember that actually, I think it's Z on Dice Tower who's uh, the big solo player. I think this is in his top 10 solo games of all time, too. Is okay. I don't think this game has gotten a lot of love from different people, but all the people that have played it do like it. Like, it, I, I think it just uh, it's gone under the radar. It really has, which is kind of a shame. <laughs> although I suppose it's nice at this point in time, it's going to be coming out bigger. I've liked it. I the first edition that I played through was pretty fun. I liked it. It's got a nice little theme. You're dwarves trying to dig through a cavern. And essentially the idea is that you're going to have a hand of cards and you're trying to play the cards out to a growing map of map board in order that you can create actions and energy synergies for you to convert different types of gems to different types of gems to trade them in for points to be able to keep moving on along. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and the uh, the new edition has new art. Um, new game get- mode. Yeah, new game mode, uh, new components. It now has little plastic gems. In the old one, they're, they're cardboard gems. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing I, I really like the artwork on the, the box cover in the first edition. Um, it's one of those things where if you flip it over, the, it reads the same exact title, Gem Rush. And the first one definitely doesn't. The new one doesn't do that for sure. I don't think I ever noticed that. Now I have to go look up a mm-hmm. picture of that. <laughs> it's pretty, yeah, flip over your monitor. You'll see what I mean. I have to go find a picture of it first. <laughs> yeah, good point. But, I mean, it's, still, it's the same game. It's a fun game. The idea here is, like you said, you're, you're laying these tiles to build the map. Um, the, as you lay the tiles, they're going to give you more abilities you could cast by going to those rooms. 
or you could use and traveling you spend gems to travel or I guess you're really mining them from your hand onto onto the table that is so weird I found a picture <laughs> I don't know how how people do that but I've seen a lot of stuff like that the we have a the Princess Bride DVD and the box is like that. The Princess Bride, you flip it over and it says the same word. I don't know how somebody could do that. Is that, is that freehead or is that? Well, I mean, it just requires messing with some of the pictures to a certain degree. Some of the letters to a certain degree. Like the S and the E get restylized. There's a line under the M. I don't think I could no, do this that. No, looks, this, looks, this looks like you have to do it manually. Yeah. I prefer I think... the current one personally. Do you? So okay. Yeah, I think it's a clear word. It is clear, but to me it looks more like subway graffiti. Nah, it looks like it looks <laughs> like an app is what it looks like. Okay. I could go with that too. A subway app. Not a subway app. <laughs> like a like a board game app like Clash Royale or Planet Through Zombies or something like that. It looks like a <laughs> okay. game app. I see. Okay. I could, that that's fine then. Um which is good because they're also releasing their digital version of the game. Oh, are they? I didn't see that. Okay. Yes, nice. that's in the campaign also. Uh, and there's other things, skill cards and stuff. Now, I don't know. I, I haven't looked through the whole thing yet. If the the original edition, there's an expansion for it. I'm not sure if this one includes it or not. I think it might because it, it mentions skill cards, and I think that's what the expansion was. It's been so long since I played the original that I couldn't tell you. Oh, I was looking at it recently. But I don't remember offhand. I, I don't have the expansion. I haven't ordered anything else from Victory Point Games to get in. So, so anyway, if you're interested in getting it, it's going to be $30. It's going to be completing its backing in, I think it's going to be May 9th. Mm-hmm. May 10th, May, excuse May me. May 10th. It's $29 probably plus shipping. So Robert, that being said, let's go ahead and rush into our review for this podcast. Let's talk about another book or book set or library. Ex Libris. Yep, this is a neat game. Let's let's dig into this one. Okay. So, so this game, what's this game about, Julius? You are building a library. You are building the best library because the town mayor has tried to find the best librarian to make a brand new library. And whoever can make the best library gets to. So you're going to have a hand of cards. And each of the cards is going to be a shelf of books. So like three, four, five books in hand, but sometimes even two. And you're going to draw more books using worker placement. Place books down on the table, worker placement. And you're trying to place the books in alphabetical order. You'll keep going round after round, see if someone can build a big enough library shelf that the game ends. You do that, you score up points, and whoever has the most points has the best library. Mm-hmm. And and that is a this is a multiplayer game, and that's that's the flow of the multiplayer game. The solo game is very similar, but a little bit different. But uh, the same go. You're trying to build the best library, and you're competing against the public library, the AI. So, Albert, let's talk about our rubric. Okay. The first thing on our rubric is talking about the rules. Albert, so you just talked into the game. There's the standard multiplayer. There's the solo mode. Did you know, Albert, that there's also a basic mode for the game? I do. 
Yes. It, it's in the rules. <laughs> it, it's in the rules. I, I, I'm, I played so many games of this when I first got it. The basic mode of the game, each player will have their own library, which gives them some extra powers over the course of the game. If you play basic, you don't have that. So you use three standard meeples instead of two standard meeples and your special meeple. So the game comes with three standard meeples. For the longest time, I've been playing this game wrong. I was playing this game not knowing that there's a basic mode, playing that everybody (laughs) gets four meeples, the three standard and your special one. Oh, no way. (laughs) That made I imagine for a that doesn't. Game. Does it? I, well, I guess it makes it more crowded, doesn't it? Because suddenly there's less actions yes, to go around. Exactly, it makes it much more crowded. So for quite a while, we were trying to figure out well, what happens if you have all of your meeples and you have nowhere to put them. Because if you do three meeples to your home board and then it's the end <laughs> of the round and there's nowhere left to put your meeple, like where are you supposed to put it? And having encountered that enough time i'm like i must be doing something wrong and i went back to those walls i'm like i am doing something <laughs> wrong whoops well that that probably made the the playing again fun it's like wow this is great i could do anything exactly it plays <laughs> it's it, awesome it, it's a lot less crowded when you're playing it right but i really felt like the rules could have done a better job for calling out the basic mode for so many games the basic mode comes as the first thing you see that it teaches you about the basic mode. Okay, great. You learned the basic mode. Well, now I will teach you all the extra rules. Um, this one didn't do that. For some reason, the basic mode sort of got like an addendum over towards the very end. And I just missed it. I'm not quite sure why they decided to do it that way. Hmm. I don't know. I, do, I didn't have trouble finding it. If my recollection is just when you're setting it up and then set up, it says, now, if this is your first game, you may want to use the basic mode and do it this way. Uh-huh. I, I don't know. I don't know for sure. But that that is frustrating if you miss it. I'd say otherwise, the rules are generally pretty good. Agreed. They do a good job of explain, explaining the flow of the game. There's a few things that are confusing here and there, and I kind of wish I had more examples and that sort of thing. But I think generally it's a good rule book. I agree. Generally it's a good rule book, especially since the game really has a distinct set of phases. Um, when you're playing the game, you have the placement phase, and then you sort of have a resolution phase. Most of the locations, most of the worker placement spots, they don't do anything until you are at the end of the round, and then they do something. So you're placing, you're putting them down, then you're figuring out if the if they're, if next round is going to be the last round, then you pick up your meeples, and then you start again. And because there's those distinct phases to each round, it lays those out pretty nicely. Now I do wish that those phases were at the end of the, were on the last page because the last page is blank and it could have had that quick reference. That would have been a nice Mm -hmm. thing to have. Also the end game conditions are in the middle of the rule book instead of being on the last page. And I really feel like that was a waste opportunity to a certain degree. I mean, the only board <laughs> in the game is nothing but a giant reference board. It's a reference board for how you score. That's the only board in the game. Otherwise, this could have been a completely a card game. I don't know why yeah. they didn't think to put a reference for what the end game is. I have to look it up every time I play. How many? Yeah. The game ends when one player has X number of cards in their library, and, and then the game's going to stop. Or you're going to get one more round. they could have made it look like a little reference book. They could have. It would have been great. (laughs) It's a a big fail on their part there, I guess. I wouldn't say it's a big fail, but definitely it's something that's missing. It it isn't a huge issue because once you've played a couple times, it's a real simple game. You don't really need it. 
I need that reference. Yeah? For how many ends the game? Yes. Oh, is it's well, the standard game is 12. But it's that's you're saying it's 12 for two players. Oh, it's based on the number of players. It's based on the number right. of players. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think it's 12, 14, 16 maybe or something like that. I can't remember. I have to look it up every time. I don't remember either. Be nice if it was in the back of the book. But okay, <laughs> we could go on on this forever. So so you mentioned the game ends like that, right? In the solo game, it's a little bit different. It's a fixed number of rounds. In that, you play, I think it's five rounds exactly. And the way that works, and maybe I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but there's different locations. You start the game with six locations on the board or, or out, out that are available to you. Each location is in action. Each round, two of those locations go away and another one replaces those. Um, so each round you have fewer locations than the last. You keep playing until the last round when there's actually only three locations available and you have four workers. Okay. But Albert, but in the pre-show, you were discussing how you had some issues with the way the solo rules were laid out? Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, I see. And we highlighted it. Yeah, you know, the, the one thing I hate, and, and it's a it's a complaint I have about just about every single game, the solo rules basically start with a phrase like, just like the multiplayer rules, but with the following changes. Ooh, I hate that. Because that means I have to go and learn the multiplayer game rules first and the setup and all that and understand that and then go back and read the solo rules and see how it's different. Well, I mean, what we do you can't... want them to do? Give you a separate rulebook for solo? I mean, what, what exactly is your expectation I... here? Okay, so yeah, this would be ideal. That's unrealistic, and I, and I could accept that. Uh, the one I've seen the, that does it the best is Gates of Luoyang. It, it, you go through and you're reading the rules, and they'll say... If you're playing one player, do it differently here. If you're playing, you know, five players, do this different, right? So it'll tell you in within the rules how to change it for that number of players. So you're not jumping back and forth between two games at, at once. I hear what right? you're saying. Okay. It, it, it makes it much easier to learn the solo game. At least for me, it makes it so much easier. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. Yeah, that would make it easier. I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. So what I ended up doing was uh, coercing my family to play one night and so we could play the multiplayer game and learn that, and then I could learn the solo rules. You, the issue with me, though, is that I always learn the solo rules and play solo for a game before I go teach it to someone else, because I am the I am the rules teacher. Mm-hmm. So then you get to learn the solo, first learn the multiplayer game, so you can learn the solo game, so you can teach the multiplayer game. Yeah, that's what I tend to do. Oh, gosh. That, yeah, that, what they should do then, since most people learn that way, is the people that read the book, learn it solo first, and then go teach other people. They should teach the solo game, and they say, now if you're playing with other people, change it like this. No, I don't think most people do. (laughs) That'd be awesome. I don't think that most people do. I just think I do. Most of our listeners This is a solo podcast. Most of our listeners. This is a solo podcast. Just go with it. Whatever you say, Albert. (laughs) You're old. (laughs) So so there we go. That's that's the rules, I think. think. So let's talk about the theme. The theme. Albert, do you yeah, like building libraries? Right? I I liked it more than I thought I would. Yes. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. I, I was not expecting to enjoy the game so much. And the the theme sounded, eh, it's whatever. Really? And it's this card game where you're arranging cards. I don't know. It sounds kind of lame. I thought it was adorable. I thought the theme was adorable. and I. Well, it is adorable, but at a distance. Oh, it's such a unique <laughs> theme. It it very much narrows in on the type of games that, that we love. We love pedantic, 
economic efficiency type games this is exactly what you're doing building a library except that it's not farming it's not battle there's no blood there's no direct conflict it's such a unique theme while still highlighting all the things that make a game good and i think it is an adorable theme because everybody is so cute in the game <laughs> yeah now you know what? my kids are, are are avid readers they they are never without a book constantly reading going to the library at school every day to get new books when i first saw about the game they were not interested at all and the way I got them to play was I pulled out the deck of cards and I showed them, I said, yeah, check these cards out. And they just started looking at the titles and reading the books on each card because each card has, you know, like you said, a few books, two, three, four books on it with titles. Mm-hmm. And and the, the books, there's different types. There's history books, there's fiction, depending on the color of the book. And they just loved reading that. <laughs> and after that, they wanted to play. <laughs> so, I mean... To me, and I guess to my family, it sounded kind of dry and not fun at first, but once you start getting into it, it's great. It really is. To the point that my daughter didn't want to put the game away because she just wanted to go through all the books and sort them and, and arrange them and whatnot. <laughs> Another thing about the theme, it really reminds me of the Tasty Minstrel series of Belfort, Harbor, those games. Um, and I guess simply because it's sort of a fantasy setting with with non-human creatures in it right in a living in mundane lives like in harbor you know the dog master might be an orc and the uh the accountant might be a a goblin or it might be a human or whatever and this game is sort of similar and there's lots of different character class or, or species in the game like there's the uh we have well i guess we'll jump into the components now I'm just going to jump in magic. Go for it. The first thing in our notes is there are adorable meeples in this. Right? And these adorable meeples mainly are the different librarians you could have if, you have a, if you're playing the, the advanced rules, the normal rules, or solo game. The Each library has a special librarian that goes with it and his meeple. Clockworks, wizards, fire golems, genies. Wizards. Um, yep, a bookworm. Bookworms, yes. <laughs> And the meeples are shaped meeples that look like whatever it is. And the most awesome of all, the gelatinous cube. It's a plastic cube. Right, when I, it is. I opened the box and I thought it was a D6, but it had no pips on it. I said, what the heck is this? This dice is defective. What a lousy <laughs> game. <laughs> and then yeah, I noticed I could even see little air bubbles inside. I said, there's air bubbles in the die? It's because it eats heck? meeples. Said, oh, and then it hit me. It's, yes, it's a gelatinous cube. And how awesome yeah, is that? It is cute. Mm-hmm. And so, so the components, the meeples are great, and they're nice, large size meeples. There's the three standard meeples that represent the normal librarians, and those look like little gnomes or something, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. All the gnomes are the same shape, and then you have the specialty meeples. You know, in a game, you're only each player is going to use one, so at most four of those, like ten or so meeples, are going to get used. Mm-hmm. Which is neat that they provided all that. I will say there's two things that regarding those meeples got left out for me. One thing is that you get your own set of colored player pieces, which don't match your library, but there's no real marker for showing which colors yours. I mean, you could hang on mm-hmm. to one of the spare because you don't use it in, unless you're playing the basic games, you could hang on to it, but then you might forget and you might actually play it or somebody else might think that you have an extra. So that hasn't worked so well yeah. for us. So there's no real way to show which color is yours. They could have been fixed with just an extra four cards. 
and that isn't there. Yeah, that's a good point. That really would have helped a lot in, in the multiplayer yeah. game. Another thing for me that was missing in terms of these meeples is all these meeples are so high quality, so nice, but then the first player marker is a glass bead. <laughs> yes, those cheap glass yeah, beads. Like, why? That could have made that better. I mean, I actually, I thought the game was so adorable that I made my own first player marker. I ordered a wooden book token, which is basically a long wise meeple nice. from Etsy. And then I put on a piece of sticker, a, what looks like a miniature page with a big one. Like imagine a book open to chapter one. So the one is first player oh, and it looks cool. really nice. I actually, the, when I ordered them, it came in a pack of five. So I made five of them and gave out four to the people around and it looks really nice. nice. And I don't, if only they could have put something like that in there. <laughs> Even if it was just cardboard. Even if it was just cardboard, but another meeple would have been really yeah. nice. It's just a glass mm-hmm. token, and it just looks so out of place with all these nice components, these nice meeples. Yeah, that that uh, that bookmark. That I would have used a bookmark mm. instead, instead of a like a book token. Yeah, but there are a lot of options for things they could have done, which would kind of also work, but not as clever or cute. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. The glass bead is a little bit lame. But so, what else are you getting components? You get player boards. There's a there's player boards enough for each of the librarian mm-hmm. types because for all the specialty libraries for all the specialty meeples um, there's also locations that you could visit in your book collecting because you're running around collecting books and these are another deck of little boards now the, um, the way it works for these locations like... is that each of them have one to four uh, worker placement spots on them and then when you go there you get to take an action and the explanation for the action you get is actually written on the locations um, I'll get back uh, in gameplay. I'll get back to this and give it some positive comments. But let's talking about it in terms of components. There's not the graphic design of this could have been a lot better. There's not a text box for the text on the location. So sometimes it's printed over a picture, and it makes it really hard to read. It's small text without a text box. It's hard to read. The later versions mm-hmm. of the game actually come with a printed location reference co- reference sheet. Um, which is available online. The earlier versions didn't come with that, but they really could have done a lot better graphic design work to put that in a text box and make that much easier to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that would have helped because when we were playing, you know, if I'm playing solo, no big deal, but when we're playing in a group, you know, I had to pick it up and read it mm-hmm. to everybody. It's a little bit annoying. And then it's, the description is long enough that it, nobody mm-hmm. remembered. Yep. So what else do we get? We got the, we got the cards. We got a big board, which is interesting. It's a nice looking board, but it's really just there to remind you how the scoring is going to work at the end mm-hmm. of the game. And I'm surprised you get this huge board for well, that. It's also used to hold and, the permanent and, locations. Oh yeah, and it holds two two of the book types on it. Well, it right? also holds the permanent locations because the, over the course of the game, some of the locations oh, yeah. stay permanent, so they go on that board, and some of the locations get discarded. Oh yeah, I just stacked them. I just put them on, under the other yeah. locations. The board is, I mean, it's just sort of unnecessary. Yeah, very much. And and it it could have really. I mean, if you're gonna make such a big unnecessary board, at least put the turn summary or, or those references that we're talking yeah. about, right? Plenty of space yeah. on there. <laughs> it, it's useful. I did find it useful at the end of the game for scoring. This though. is true. Definitely. But then you have the nice dry erase scoreboard, which is very useful for scoring. Mm-hmm. I like that. That. Well, let me ask fun. you a question, Albert. Do you prefer a dry erase scoreboard like in this game, or do you prefer written score sheets like in 
many other games. Yeah, Agricola or anything else. So I, I enjoy the dry erase board. The big board, it, it was fun to play with. It, it just added lots oh, of Oh, really? You I prefer think. the dry erase? And I like it because of that. Yes, except there's two issues. I'm constantly worried that at some point my dry erase markers are not going to erase, and then you're going to start seeing those old marks well, in there. my dry erase markers fall. dried up. And there's that. I, I never was actually able to use them when I came with a box, so I had to find my mm. own marker. But other, those are the two issues I have with it. Other than that, I really like it. I, I find it I very prefer fun. a written one, personally. I think it's easier to write on a written thing because you don't have to worry about smudging it and things like that. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you, often with a written one, the winner, I tear off the one that they want and hand it to them. Congratulations, you won. Here's your prize. <laughs> and you can't do that with this. That's fine. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I'll usually save those things in, in the box and you can go back and look mm-hmm. at the old games. But yeah, I wish I had been a written score sheet instead of a dry erase scoreboard, but I understand that's a heated topic for debate. <laughs> also, the, the board is double-sided, right? Because the front side, or maybe it's the back, the back side is for the multiplayer Truth. game. The front <laughs> the front side is for the solo game. And it is a little bit different, ever so slightly different. And so, you know, so it does serve two purposes. So that's all about the components, I believe. Let's talk about the gameplay, Albert. No. Go for it. No, it's not. We forgot one component. Oh, sure. Go for it. The the deck of 300 or so cards. <laughs> we didn't mention. That is the most important component. I mean, you could do without the rest of it, but you need those. <laughs> the cards, you know, like I said, there's 300 or so, 400 or so cards. I don't remember how many it is. It's a lot of cards, and they represent the library, the, the shelves of book. Each card will have, it looks like a, a bookshelf, a, you know, a small single shelf from a large unit with a number of books on it. Um, there's five types Six. of books, and and they're color-coded. Like the black is the Forbidden Alchemy or something like that, and yellow's History, and so on. Five colors. Um, each shelf can contain any mix of those books, and they're always alphabetical. And in the top, it'll tell you, oh, this shelf is for the A's, and it's one of six A cards. And the next one will be two of six and three of six. And if you sorted out the cards, you'd find that all those titles actually are alphabetical because each book on the spine does have a title. Um, Those titles don't really matter. In terms of the game, all that matters is knowing the letter and which order it goes in in the letters. Um, And we'll get that into that in the gameplay, or maybe we won't. But the... Those those are definitely very important. Your the back of the card has a title of the game and is also a shelf with no books on it. And that matters because you use that in the game in some cases. Uh, each book has a unique title. You know, there's I think six hundred unique books is what it said. Um, and they're just fun to go through. They're just silly titles. Some are funny and and actually many of them are funny. You know, some more funny than others, but but they're great. They're they're all really funny. I thought. We'll come mm-hmm. back to this probably a bit. Well, talk about it now. Um, we actually have a house rule for us because over the course of the game, we're going to be placing those cards into your library. We did a house rule that until people start forgetting because the game gets more heated, that you have to read at least one of the titles of the books out when you play it into your library, um, which <laughs> they're very funny. They're very cute. And sometimes, you know, which ones people think are the funniest are indicative and things like that it's always funny to talk about adds a lot more of a social experience to it when we play multiplayer 
It yeah you know that should almost be part of the rules, you know, in the official rules because you're right. You, you they tell you the titles don't matter, but you you want to read them because they make the game more fun. They should have told you you have to read one title as you play it down. <laughs> you know, and, and at the end of the show, if you stay past the show notes, we're gonna have a spoiler. We're gonna read all the book titles to you guys. No, <laughs> no, we won't do that. But <laughs> that would be fun. In a not really kind of way. So gameplay. Do you want to talk about the multiplayer gameplay first, Julius? Sure. For the multiplayer gameplay, we talked about how you're having these locations that are coming out to the board. Oh. And you know what? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Let's talk about the solo uh, gameplay first and then explain how the multiplayer game is different. Okay, Albert. Go for it. Let's do it right. You know, that's wrong of us to complain about that earlier and then do the same mistake ourselves. So in this... So in the solo game, there's about 10, there's 10 different locations. You're going to shuffle them up these tiles. You're going to place six of them face up, and you're going to set the other four to the side. Each turn with your workers, you're going to place each worker on a different location, including your home library, which is also a location. So, so the first round, you can have seven locations to pick from and four workers to place. You cannot place two workers in the same location. That's, that's a solo game thing. Um, once you've placed all your workers and taken the actions... That ends the round. You're going to get two of the locations, your choice, off the board and replace it with one from the deck of, of uh, dwindling locations. And you do that for five rounds. By the end, you have three locations on the board plus your home. No, two locations plus your home. And once that round is over, you're going to score your library and the AI. That's basically the game. The actions tend to be things like drawing cards from the deck or playing cards to your library. Um... Or drawing cards from some of the locations. That's basically the gameplay right there. Yeah, uh, I think we summarized that mostly earlier too. Yeah, I know. It, but it's so important we'll say it twice. The, then the next part, finally, once you've played through all the game, you're going to score it. You're going to score your books. There's a couple different aspects you want to score. The, that, your, the, that your books are in alphabetical order. So you're going to go through and scan your library. If you have a book that starts with the letter C before a book that starts with the letter A, you're going to flip that second one over the A, and it's not going to score those books anymore. Those books are gone. Um, but you still leave it in place because the next thing you're going to score, the first thing you can actually score is the stability of the shelf. You're basically going to see if you can form a rectangle area that contains cards on your on your board and score how many cards you have in that rectangular area. So if you have a section that's, say, three wide by three tall, then you're going to score those nine. And you're looking for the largest rectangle you can make. Um, then you're also going to score points for your secret type of book collection. That was that one card you flipped over that tells you what color is the most valuable for you. You're going to score a lot of points for that. There's a preferred book that uh, affects everybody in the game. You're going to score points for how many preferred books you have. There's a band books. You're going to score negative points for how many band books you have. And finally, in a Nizia style scoring, you're going to score points, and this is where you get the most points, from the type of book of which you have least of, excluding those band books. So you basically need to make sure you have lots of all the good books in the game to get a good score. Um you can score all that for yourself. You can score all that for the AI, and, and whoever has the most points wins. The AI is interesting. I really like how they did the AI in this game. Why so? The AI's library is just a discard pile. 
any card that you discard during the course of the game or any cards left in your hand at the end of the game go to the library to the public library um, and it's going to be a lot of cards the public library does not care about the order of the books and it doesn't have a shelf that it cares about it's just how it's just number of books um, I found it funny in the rules that it mentioned that you know the order doesn't matter the neatness doesn't matter because you know it's a public library nobody expects it to be neat <laughs> but yeah, so so that has a lot of cards in it, which is what happens. Some of the locations, each round, you play a number of cards into it. And for example, one of the locations you could go there, it's a book trader, and you could take one of the cards from your hand and trade it with one of the cards in that location. So if you see a card there that you really want, because it's a for your current library, it's a better letter, you may want to trade it. Um, at the end of each round, all the cards in the locations get discarded. So. So each round, you know, if there's a location that has three and another that has four books on it, that's seven books going to the AI, to the AI's library each round. Um, which I found really interesting because a lot of the really good locations have books on them. And you want to keep those around because they're useful for you, but you realize that the longer you leave them around, um, the more books the AI is getting. And so that's a neat balancing act, deciding when to get rid of those locations because remember you're going to discard two locations of your choice each round you could choose to discard these that that are giving the AI lots of books or something else that you don't ever seem to want to visit so that's the solo game did i explain everything i think so okay one interesting thing for me with the solo game is that you're having to pay a lot of attention to both your discarded cards and the cards that you're keeping in your hand usually when you're playing the multiplayer game cards that you discard you don't have to worry about it. It's very hard to go get those. Whereas in the multiplayer game, that forms the majority of the AI's deck. And that definitely requires a different thought process than you're going through regularly. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. A lot of times I'm thinking, oh, I really want to discard this card because it has a lot of banned books. And I would love the AI to get them. Or, or conversely, this this has a lot of useful books. I, I may not be able to necessarily place it strategically, but I don't want the AI to get these uh, preferred books and so yeah that, that is that is interesting yeah um one more thing about the solo game all those cool meeples and stuff i think like half of them are using the solo game only the other ones only apply to the multiplayer game including that gelatinous cube i was so disappointed same with the regular one too same with the um locations too yes about half the locations get used yep and so and so you'll never see them you know, in the solo game, you play with the same 10 locations every time. The other six or so go in. And, you know, I haven't tried it, but some of them look like they could easily work in a solo game or, or work with a slight tweak to the rule. Yeah, but I don't then, know you'd have why. To, then you'd have to do something on the board themselves, and that doesn't promote well for clarity. Maybe, yeah, maybe. But, you know, if you're doing it solo, it not, might not be a big deal. I think, especially the librarians, you could probably use them, some of them. I wouldn't have liked it. If if you're not the kind of person that is playing a different game every week and and you're gonna have just a few games, I would definitely over time would definitely start experimenting with using them. I could see that happening, and I think it would work. Huh. I yeah, I wouldn't I, have been I, happy I had it been. Oh, you have to remember that when you're playing solo, this does a different thing, especially when the location boards are already overcrowded. No, I don't think <laughs> that would have been a good thing. 
Yeah, but it'll add to the longevity of your game, right? You know, once you've played it out the normal way, you may start making your house rules. Mm -hmm. I, I don't I'm not, I'm not saying to go do that. I'm saying if you find you want to try the other locations for solo play, I think it it could be house ruled. Mm -hmm. In terms of my thoughts about the general gameplay of the game, though, outside of just the outside of the solo, the fact that there are so many different kinds of locations and each location really does something different means that for me the game has been very replayable some of the locations do stay in play most of the time because the one that the the location with the lowest number which is the most plain i think um type of effect stays for multiple rounds so you'll start to see some of the more common types staying on there normally mm -hmm. but there's a lot of really different unique things. Like one of them does drafting. One of them does gambling. One of them does just replacing things. One of them lets you trade cards for actions or trade actions for cards, cards and so many different types of things that they do with all the different locations and all the different player powers. It makes the game very replayable. Mm -hmm, yep. And, and, and the way that works, like you said, the lowest number goes out each round means that sometimes some of the high numbers may get out. Right, it, it is possible that a mm -hmm. a twelve or something will get picked because all the high numbers that turn. Mm -hmm. So you just never know. It's just yeah, lot lot of replayability there. One other thing for me, a strategy for the game that I've been using at least, and I don't know if Albert feels the same way. You're wanting to put the cards out in order because if the card isn't out in order, then you have to flip it over you and get points for it, which means that for me, quite often, I've wanted to start building up a large hand of cards to make sure that I'm not accidentally going to draw a card later and be like, oh, this would have been perfect, but I already locked myself out of it and I can't take it now. And I don't want to have that happen. So because of that, I, I draw up a lot of cards and then I wait a bit and sort of play like a game of chicken with the other players. Like who's going to start playing first and soonest and start actually putting things on the table. Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to because some of the locations that come out are just really good for playing things to the table. And so that may sort of start teetering people at the balance of playing a whole bunch, things like that. But for me, I've seen that be a very consistent strategy. And it may be, I've played this about um, at least 10 times. I'm not seeing that strategy so often that i'm feeling like it's tiring or something like that that it's that's detracting from the gameplay but i am seeing that strategy come up consistently i don't know if you're seeing the same thing albert yeah i only played multiplayer ones um i see it also when in we played... solo as well um i hadn't done when i played solo i haven't done that so much um you know it might might it might change how well i score when i played multiplayer my son when he found out that we needed to get a, I think it was like, I said 12 books or something like that. He went and got 12 cards in the hand and then started playing them each turn in order. And that was his strategy. I'm just going to get the cards I need and then play them all. And then I will know that they all work. Um, that did may that have worked, but he did not, he did not do it efficiently. He didn't take advantage of like getting extra actions and things like that. Cause, cause you could uh, do things sometimes to get yourself a few extra actions here and there. Right. And by not by taking advantage of that, he would have gotten his cards a lot faster. Therefore, everybody else would have not had as many points. But he ended up having the lowest score because of that. I think he could have done better, definitely. 
It was it was an interesting strategy. It didn't look fun to me. Collect as many cards as I can and then just play them all in order. Didn't seem fun. I guess you could try and figure out the best way to get them out, and that could that could be fun. I don't know. I, it, it seems like there's different ways to play, and, and over time, you know, you could change and evolve and change strategies for who you're playing with and that sort of thing. Um, is there anything else about the the multiplayer games? Uh, a difference in the multiplayer game is you're not l limited to one worker per location, right? In some cases, you could have two or three workers, and that matters because there's, for example, the, I think the clockwork guy, that special worker, his special ability when you play him is you'll get to play an extra basic action for each worker you have on that location. So if, if I say for my last worker and I've got all four at that location, I get four extra actions. In the solo game, he's always the only worker at a location, so he only gets one action. Um, and what else? The I don't have anything else to you. Nope. Well, out of curiosity, Albert, <laughs> do you prefer playing solo or multiplayer? I like solo. Uh, it, it's way thinky, and I like that. Yeah. Actually, when I played multiplayer, I coerced my family to play, and and they felt bad the whole time, worried they're not enjoying it, and I didn't do a great job of explaining the rules, and some things were a little confusing. Like, like each location that was brand new was only a confusing location. So, so playing multiplayer kind of stressed me out, and I didn't enjoy it as much because I was worried the family wasn't enjoying it. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting concern. Yeah, and it was, you know. For me, it is so tight between the two of them. I really like them both. Multiplayer edges out just a little bit for me because of all the locations and, and libraries that you can't use solo. And also because mm -hmm. then I can make someone else do all the math. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't mind the math. I like it. No, the, but uh... really it's because of the, the locations and things that you can't use solo. And I, I want to use those, so... It's it's really night it's really tight and narrow between the two, but multiplayer edges out just a little because of that for me. Okay, now I find that that very thinky games, like say um, uh, Snowdonia, when you play solo, very very thinky, you spend a lot of time trying to find the optimal move. Games like that, I prefer solo, because when you start adding other players, it adds chaos, right, and and less opportunity for for making a very thinky game. If it's if it's a game that's much lighter with a lot more randomness, I, I a lot of times those are more fun for me. Multiplayer versus solo. Mm -hmm. But okay, yeah. In general, this gets a double thumbs up for me. I really like yes. it. Both multiplayer, it's a beautiful playing game, really unique theme, and wonderful to play. Excellent worker placement game. Very different idea. This idea of trying to place things out in alphanumeric order. Very different, very unique, and very enjoyable for me. Definitely hits the kind of thinky, intellectual-type gameplay that I'm looking for in a game. Yep, same here. Definitely a thumbs up. I, I really like this game. A thumbs up for me. I, I love the thinkiness of it. I definitely prefer it solo over multiplayer. I, I hope to see an expansion for it. And, and I hope to see variants so that I could use all those meeples in the solo game. Albert, is that somebody? Is, is that a phone I hear ringing over there? Oh, yes, that's... Hang on. I gotta get that. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's Teron Kratz. He's he's calling. We're talking about Helinox tonight. All right. Well, let's uh, sit in on that conversation.
listeners, this is uh, Albert. I have Taryn Kratz here, designer of... How do you pronounce the game? Heliodox? <laughs> Heliodox. And hi, hi, Taryn. How are you doing? <laughs> what a what a sloppy intro there. I'm doing great today, Albert. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, actually, a, a listener of the show said he'd love to hear an interview with you. I said, well, I'll see what I can do, and, and we'll have you on. Excellent. Let me give a shout-out to him. His name is... Um, the listener is Frankie Bones, uh, Night Eye 77 on BGG, so so thank you for the suggestion. Oh, yeah. Thank you, oh, Frankie. Frank. I've talked to him a bunch on BGG. He's one oh, of the okay. uh, he's um, one of the backers of uh, Heliodox. Was he a backer? Oh, okay. Excellent. That's right, because this was on Kickstarter, wasn't it? It sure was, yeah. So so before I ask you about the game, let, just let's learn a little bit about you. Um, so you are the designer of the game, and are you also the owner of the company? I am, yeah. Yeah. Designer okay. of the game. This is my first game. And, uh, yeah, I'm the owner of Zero at Games as well. Very cool. Okay. Um, and how long have you been gaming? Uh, gaming. Well, I I would say, well, I've been gaming since forever. I mean, in the, in the 80s, I certainly played my share of role-playing games, D&D and stuff. Played a bunch of Dungeon. Mm-hmm. You know, got into Magic in the 90s. Ah, okay, yeah. Played Magic like crazy, of course. Yep. yep. Uh, but, yeah, in the 2000s, like, I'd say mid uh, mid early two thousands. Uh, I remember I started getting into Dominion shortly after that came out, and yeah, it's been nothing but tabletop games ever since. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Boy, that's, that sounds familiar because yeah, for me, I, I was playing D anD D in the nineties, early eighties with my friend, late eighties, and then got into Magic, and then you know burnt out in that a bit after the after spending all that money, and then found tabletop games in the nineties or in the two thousands, just like you're saying. <laughs> yep, it's probably a pretty common trick. It's a very familiar story. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And um, so are you a solo gamer or, or mainly pro, uh, multiplayer gamer? Um, well, I would say I'm probably mainly a multiplayer gamer. I started getting into it with my family a lot because we all like the tabletop well. I like it more than the rest of my family, but I they, they humor <laughs> me and they'll play games with me. Uh, <laughs> okay. But I've done my fair share of solo gaming too. In fact, I... I got into solo gaming a little bit uh, when the Lord of the Rings LCG came out, which was a fantastic mm-hmm. solo game, and it kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow, what? At first I was like, I don't even know. Are people even solo gaming? Like, what? What is the solo gaming thing? And then I tried it, and I was like, wow, that was actually really fun. I enjoyed that as much as sitting and playing a video game. So I started doing a little bit more of that, and then uh, after designing Heliox, I kind of started talking to some of the people on BGG, and they were like, dude, you should totally do a, a solo version of this. So that's when I kind of got into the, the solo testing and and uh, actually building some games. I don't, I don't, I doubt I'll ever make another game that doesn't have a solo mode. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's just, a, it's such an excellent community. All the people I've met through it have just been some of the most valuable play tests I've had. It's been fantastic working with all the different solo gamers along the way. Yeah, that, that's very cool. That's very cool. Okay. Um, what type of games do you like? Um, I'm definitely a strategy gamer. Uh, I like, you know, games that have less randomness to them. So I'm more a fan of, uh, not so much Euros necessarily, although I do like Euros. Uh, but definitely games that don't have a lot of dice chucking. Although, you know, I do like my fair share of, of dice games too. You know, like Summoner Wars has dice as the combat, but if the dice are done right, then it's it's cool. It can be done right. But yeah, I definitely like strategy games where uh, your choices are what's really impacting the way the game plays out. So 
Mm. Mm -hmm. A lot less random. Yeah, randomness can be frustrating sometimes in a game. It can be, yeah. It it can definitely be frustrating. Yeah. Um, You know, but, you know, again, it depends on the the crowd I'm with. If if I've got people that just really enjoy this type of gaming and, you know, or it's just a casual crowd or something like that, I'll, I'll play that too. But, yeah, certainly in my solo gaming, I'll... I'll always go towards strategic gaming. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. And you said Helinox is your first game. Does that mean there's going to be a second game? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely going to have more games. Do you have plans uh, for more? Okay. Yeah, I've got got quite a few games uh, planned already. Um, I've got a game that I actually didn't design it. A friend of mine designed it. Uh, actually, a couple friends of mine designed it, and they brought me on to run the Kickstarter for them. So that one's probably going to be up this spring early summer late spring a game called festival uh so that one's going to be pretty okay. fun uh and it's it's kind of a lightweight sort of a filler game but yeah we're definitely building a solo mode into it i was like guys we got to do a solo mode on this and so uh going to be bringing on some people to help solo test and stuff like that now when you when you told them you wanted a solo mode what was the reaction do, do people do you find they're hesitant to do that still or not so much. Um, it's funny because a couple years ago, I remember talking to this particular designer about solo gaming, and he actually owns a game store too. And he's like, "I don't know. Is that really is that really a big crowd?" And I was like, "I don't know, uh, but I'm going to do it for Helionox." <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. I I don't know how big that crowd is." And then I've started to notice t- more and more people. A lot of the people that I interact with on BGG and other places are, are tending to be solo gamers. So I kind of relayed a lot of that information to these other two designers who are who are designing festival, and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, let's make a let's make a solo solo version of it for sure. And they've they've noticed kind of that trend in the in the gaming industry too. There's there's definitely a strong community for solo gamers. And the cool thing I notice about mm-hmm, solo absolutely. gamers, they tend to talk a lot on these different platforms like BGG and stuff because I don't know, you're solo gaming, you got to share your your cool things that you found out about this game somewhere, right? You can't talk to the other guy at the table, so you uh, share it on BGG. That's right. So you go online and share it. Yep. Yeah, uh, I know Facebook has a solo gaming community. That's like Last time I looked, I think it was like 9,000 people there. That's cool. And on BGG, there's a the one-player guild for solo gaming, and that has that's getting close to 9,000. Uh-huh. And as a matter of fact, it's, of the, it's the second largest guild on BGG, so yeah, it's a huge community. Yeah, absolutely. And people wouldn't think it because yeah, who you know, gaming alone—that's that's for one person. Nobody would think there's there's a a group. <laughs> but sure enough, yeah. So so let's talk about Helionox. Um, so, so first of all, what is the game about? What's this? What's the setting and all that? The 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 type of game. Yeah, so it's a it's a sci-fi game uh, set distant future, like way distant future, um, and basically we've discovered that there's a problem with the sun and the sun is dying, whether it's due to some things that humanity has done or whether it's just happening. Uh, it's, it's, it's in rapid decay, but you know, it's still going to be a long process. Uh, maybe, you know, thousand years or, or, or so before the sun actually is really dead. Um, so your job in Helionox is to, run around the solar system and try to uh, gather up enough influence so that you can lead humanity into kind of the next era. And the winner of the game is the one who gains the most influence, kind of, you know, maybe the one who saves civilization in a sense. 
maybe you know the plan is you move to another solar system or you just adapt or you fix the the sun problem or something like that but over the course of the game there's all these different events coming out kind of as a result of the panic and stuff involved with uh going on with the heliox and so you have to run around the solar system putting out all these fires in all these different locations okay I'm, i i kind of miss it because because the the audio is breaking up a little bit what what is the heliox you said it's a thing Oh yeah, the Heliox itself is actually the name that uh, you know humanity has given the the slow decay of the sun as it's as it's dying out, and uh, kind of goes along with all these other things that are uh, kind of happening during the Heliox. The Heliox is kind of maybe this thousand year era where all this stuff is happening, and your characters in the game actually can uh, go into cryo sleep for long periods of time. And then wake up and kind of nudge their plans into motion, and then they go back into cryo sleep for a time period. So their their lifespans are much different than the way that we think of lifespans in in our society now. Yeah. Okay. And so the character doing this is uh, the architect, and I guess right. And you have one architect in the game. Exactly. Yeah. You pick your architect at the beginning of the game, and that's your character for the whole game. That is neat. Yeah, it's kind of cool. the um... The cryo sleep thing is really fun, and and really gives kind of some interest to the the kind of theme of the game. Mm-hmm, yep. And so so when you're doing the cryo sleep, I, I read through rules a little bit. It looks like you, you do an action, and the action makes you sleep for a while. And um, different actions take different amounts of time, I guess. Is that true? Uh-huh, exactly. So the, the more powerful of an ability that you uh, activate, then uh, the longer you end up going into cryo sleep. So if you use this power that... Nice, okay. Uh, yeah, and most architects... That, that, that adds a neat tension to it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the game is only nine turns, so you you, only, you know how many turns you're going to have for the full course of the game. So, you know, you can kind of plan that out. Now, there's some ways of removing cryo, depending right. on some different uh, cards you get and some different locations that you end up at, but uh, you can you can manage it a little bit, but it, it does. You can kind of start to count things out. Oh, man, am I going to get to go back into cryo before the end of this game or not? Okay. And so where did the idea of this setting come from? I mean, are, are you like a big sci-fi fan or, or it's, it just seems really original? Yeah, yeah. I'm a big sci-fi fan. I read a ton. Uh, a friend of mine, the artist for this game, and I started talking about the setting a little bit and uh, he had all kinds of cool ideas and uh, we just started going back and forth. He and I used to like write comic books together when we were kids and uh oh, cool he uh you know he just he kind of he didn't really do a lot of drawing uh over the last i don't know 10 15 years as far as i know but approached me about the idea of working on a game together and he's like yeah i'll, I'll put together some art for it and i'm like oh, okay cool you're doing art and he's like i think i can do it and yeah he he sat down and started busting out this world and we just started kind of coming up with all these ideas together and Man, the, the artwork just turned out amazing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And he did all the art in, for the he game? He did all the illustrations, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, okay. That, that is super cool. That, that's funny. You guys were, were buddies and <laughs> he hasn't done anything in ages. You wouldn't think that. Oh, I know. I mean, he looks like total pro-level artist. I mean, everybody who sees it is just like, oh my gosh, this game. I'm, I'm in. Yeah. I, I just, it's I mean, so beautiful. He, I want to play it. Yeah, he obviously is a pro-level artist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that's super cool. Um, the the cover actually every time I see it, the at least the first edition. I haven't noticed so much the, the newer the deluxe edition, but it reminds me of two specific uh, things I know from the past. 
I'm not sure why. I think it's just maybe the posture of the character or something. One is a comic book called Grey by Viz Comics. It was sort of a, a futuristic thing. And I, I just remember the guy wearing his helmet sort of leaning forward like that. Oh, okay. And the other one is Akira, uh-huh. the, the Japanimation, right? That, it reminds me a lot of that for some reason. Yeah. No, the it character's face so actually looks like Kaneda. Yeah. And honestly, that, that right there, that cover is just what really excited me about the game when I yeah, first saw it. Yeah, no, I actually don't – I haven't heard of Gray, but um, certainly certainly Akira, uh, my, uh, the artist – his name's Luke Green, by the way. Uh, the artist and myself were big fans of Akira uh, back when that came out. And so certainly that had some influence on this. We started watching a lot of anime around that time, and that one was one that we were like, oh, yeah, wow, this is this is cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's going to have its uh... – 30th anniversary this year or something oh like that. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Grey was never very popular. It was a comic book. There was also a movie about it apparently. I never saw it, but I heard about it. Oh, okay. Um, and I think there's only ever two issues. I guess it didn't do very well. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I'll have to check that one out. So besides the game, there's, there's the original game. There's also something called the Mercury Protocol. What is that about? Oh, yeah. So the Mercury Protocol is the expansion that kind of goes along with the game. Uh, just kind of speaking again to the theme of the game, uh, basically, uh, so the Heliox is going on, and during this time period, there's this planet, of course, Mercury, is much closer to the sun. And so, at some point before the Heliox actually began, a bunch of scientists and uh, governments kind of got together and started uh Mercury kind of became a penal colony. We were like, okay, we know we want to colonize this, but nobody really wants to live there. So they started sending people there. And then all these weird scientists kind of started flocking there as well and kind of working on like cybernetic parts and like these weird mutations on people. So there's there's kind of this strange community that's built up around Mercury. Well, Mercury is the first planet to go down when the Heliox actually hits and it just gets zapped by mm-hmm. some solar flares. And so the people that actually escaped from Mercury – uh, have all this weird tech, and now they're kind of refugees loose in the solar system. And they've got all this strange tech that the main government, the government of of this um, of this world is called the Innerworld Government. And they've cracked down on all this, mer- what they're calling Mercurian technology. They're calling it illegal tech. And so uh, part of the Mercury Protocol is, you know, this protocol that the Innerworld Government has enacted against the Mercurian tech. And so you're trying to use some of this illegal tech throughout the course of the game. You're trying to get away with it without having a lot of the uh, uh, bad things that kind of go along with with using it. But thematically, it's because all these refugees have been kind of put in place throughout the solar system. There's all this weird kind of tech available that wasn't available in the original in the original game, and it all is kind of a result of the uh, the uh, what's the Mercury Protocol is what it's called. So. That's kind of how it fits in with theme-wise. I see. Okay. Yeah, people from Mercury always seem to get a bad rap. Yeah, I know. I know how that goes, man. Yeah. Those Mercurians. Yeah, you never know what they're up to. Yeah. <laughs> Just a bunch of hotheads, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's kind of cool. So, like, mechanically how it works. Um, so, this is – I am I call this game a, uh, a sci-fi movement-based deck-building game. So again, you're you're deck building, but you're also moving around all these different locations. Well, Mercury isn't Mercury isn't in play because, uh, of course, it's been nuked, it's been burnt. But um, in the expansion, there's all this new tech available, and the tech is only available at specific locations. So wherever these kind of refugees ended up, 
you know, there's this kind of tech there and you can go and get that tech if you're at that location. Uh, and so since it's a deck building game, when you get that tech, it goes into your deck. But if you still have that tech in your deck at the end of the game, then you get penalized a certain number of points. And basically you also get penalized each time you play it. So the idea is use it a few times, but not too much, and then get rid of it before the end of the game. So if you end the game without it, then you don't get the extra penalty for it. So again, it just kind of builds in with that thematic of, oh, you're really not supposed to be using this, but mm -hmm. if you can get away with it, then you get a bonus. Nice. That's cool. I like that. I like that. Does that expansion bring extra characters that you could play? Oh yeah, with the Mercury Protocol, yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of different characters that kind of come along with it, and some of them are kind of involved with the, the tech side of it. Some of them can utilize uh, some of the bad parts about the tech, kind of the, the infamy that you gain. Basically, it's influence that you're trying to gain is, is basically victory points, and then infamy is kind of the negative victory points. So each time you play the uh, illegal tech, you're gaining infamy, and then if you have it in your deck at the end of the game, you get more infamy. So uh, some of the characters can actually work with infamy. Some of the characters can actually... Uh, just work with using the tech a little bit easier, getting it a little bit cheaper. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. I'm always interested in that marriage of theme and mechanics. That's like where where my brain really likes to go when I think of games. I really like stuff that has deep theme that goes along with it, but solid mechanics, not just kind of random mm -hmm. stuff that feels a little bit thematic. I want stuff that's just married together as far as that goes. So it's always my focus. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and when it ties together nicely, it just, it's beautiful. It works out so well. Exactly. It's often so satisfying when that happens, yeah. Um, so then there's another game. There's a deluxe edition. So what's that about? Well, so basically um, in, what was it, 2013, I did what was called Helionox The Last Sunset. And basically that's just kind of the original game that I put out uh, in a small box edition, uh, you could get it in like a two-player box on the Kickstarter, or I think it was the full. Actually, no, I think I did. You could get a four-player box on the Kickstarter, and then there was like a two-player version that went to retail, but it was all small box. And so 2014 came around, and I decided to launch a Kickstarter for the uh, Mercury Protocol expansion, and that one ended up failing. So interest. This is kind of an interesting Kickstarter story. So my first, uh, 2013, we had a $12,000 goal, and we did 15000 on that one. So I was like, okay, well, that's cool. Nice. 2014 comes around, I launched the expansion, and uh, that one failed. by a, we, we got like 11, we were focused, we were trying to get 12, and I was like, okay, that didn't work out. And I, I know some of the things that I did wrong going into that, kind of retooled the whole thing. And I put both of them, so basically I took the four-player edition of The Last Sunset, took the expansion, Mercury Protocol, and put it into one big box and called it the Deluxe Edition and repackaged and um, did some of the parts a little bit differently, reworked a few of the cards and stuff like that. So basically it's all one big edition called the Deluxe Edition. Launched that Kickstarter uh, back in summer uh, 2017 and uh, kind of knocked it out of the park, really. We did uh, 82000 I think, on the, on the final Kickstarter. Oh, wow. So it was like, yeah, okay, that worked. Yeah, I cannot imagine like doing something like that like putting some, i put something on kickstarter two years ago it was a challenge coin for the one player guild and i think i tried to raise thousand dollars or something i cannot imagine going over the go by that much i can't imagine how i would feel it was so much fun i mean day one day one was like <laughs> an eighteen thousand dollar day 
and I was just like, oh, wow, this is going to be a fun campaign. <laughs> it was just such a blast. I mean, people, <laughs> when you get a day one like that, people just kind of flock to it, I think, and, and they're really interested. They're like, oh, why is this so popular? And then they see the artwork, and they're like, okay, well, this has great artwork. A lot of people seem interested in it. Oh, there's some good reviews for it out there. There's some good buzz about it on BGG. Okay. And that was just kind of the story the whole time, and so much fun. Yeah, that's neat. Oh, it's just a, just a really neat community on Kickstarter as well. Yeah, yeah, the people there are neat too. That's what I mean. You, you could get a lot of anger sometimes. <laughs> usually, usually it's deserved when people get the anger, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. Right. So, so in BGG, there is a user Mo seven one eight nine. Uh-huh. He mentioned playing without the expansion for a while. He said you should probably play without the expansion before you mix it in. Yep. Is it changing the game a lot? Is that why he, he would say that, you think? Well, it adds it adds some stuff for sure. So it's probably better to get familiar with it without the expansion first because it adds, you know, basically it adds more choices, more things that you can do on your turn, which can be a little bit of brain meltdown if, you know, if you're not familiar with the game anyway. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend playing it without the expansion first, at least a game or two. And then once you get familiar with it, you can add okay. the expansion. I mean, after after one or two games, you'll be familiar enough with the game to, to add in the expansion for sure. But um, definitely helps to get that little bit of familiar where, familiarity with it first. Okay. Do you think it, be, it becomes harder to win or just ups the complexity? Um, I think it... You know, I think it mostly just ups the complexity. I don't think it may necessarily makes it harder to win. It's It's pretty balanced both ways, like because um, you you have to it's harder the score of the kind of ai that you're fighting against ends up being higher the ai system for the solo mode is called uh, the shadow syndicate and the shadow syndicate can score a little bit easier with the expansion but you also have more tools available to you with the expansion so it kind of balances out um an interesting story about kind of mo and and some of those other guys on the on the bgg stuff they are the ones that actually came up with the idea of the Shadow Syndicate. Uh, the original solo version that I had in the 2013 release of Heliox: The Last Sunset, it was okay, wasn't great. But some of these guys on BGG just took it and they're like, "Hey, what if we did this? And what if we did this?" And I started following along with what they were doing, and I'm like, "Hey, guys, let's make this happen for this deluxe edition." And they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, let's do it." And so they all started helping me playtest it and getting the getting the solo mode dialed in and Mo was awesome along the way. I mean, he did a ton of development work for me, uh, getting the solo mode ready. Cool. And yeah, let's give a shout out to Mo cause he's a listener of the show. Oh, awesome. Hey, thanks so hey, much. Mo. Mo. So, Hey Mo. <laughs> thanks for doing that. He, he's been one of the long time listeners. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. He's doing great stuff for the solo community. I'm definitely going to be uh, bringing him back on board for, uh, any solo modes of any game that I do. He's already reached out to me about doing some more stuff. Uh, together so i'm definitely looking forward to working with him some more oh that's cool okay okay so as a solo gamer how much if if i buy this game how much of it is going to sit in the box and never get touched if i'm strictly a solo gamer uh hmm i don't know that any of it i mean you know you have like four colors to choose from at the beginning of the game so you might use red this game and green the next game so you know you won't use all of the the different pieces that you need for each color for up to a four-player game of course but, I mean, honestly, you know, you use all the cards. In fact, there's a few extra pieces that come with it for solo mode that uh, only are for solo. Well, for solo and co-op. So there's there's a few pieces oh, okay. that are only for solo and co-op. Um, so, yeah, most of the game you pretty much use. There's not, nothing really that just sits in the box and, and is completely unused. Cool. Okay, so, so actually, 
There's a solo, uh, there's a solo mode, a co-op mode, and a competitive mode. Yeah, yeah, and the co-op mode is actually based on the solo mode. We actually designed the solo mode first, and then I basically took all those rules and designed the co-op mode based on that. Oh, neat. Okay. I, I was looking at your profile on BGG, and it says you've played this game hundreds of times. I yeah. mean, I assume that's all playtesting? Yeah. I cannot imagine playing a game that much. Oh my gosh, it gets... It gets crazy, but you know, it's, you know, it's, it's my own game, so I gotta say it's a good game, but honestly, it's got some good replay value. Like, I don't really, I don't really get burned out on it. I mean, every single time I play it, it's a new, it's a new setup, there's new stuff going on, there's new interactions, there's, uh, you know, trying to push my score a little bit higher, all that kind of stuff, with, you know, using a different character, or using a different setup, uh, right from the start. So, I haven't, you know, I, I can say I haven't really got tired of it. I mean, I don't play it a ton on my own anymore because i've already played it so much but uh you know if somebody goes or if i'm at a if i'm at a show or like at a con or something like that i, I demo it at, at cons a lot and uh you know it's 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 always still fun it's like, okay this is cool if i can and i'm a i'm a creator you know if i if i don't like a game or if it's just you know it's not clicking with me i'll stop playing it pretty quick so i'm glad that i can still sit down and enjoy this one that that's neat are, are you planning to, to do more with this game in the future? You can add more expansions or anything like that? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely plan on doing some more uh, expansions in the future. Um, let's see. I don't know exactly when. I'm probably going to work on a couple of other games first. But, um, yeah, I'm definitely planning to do some expansions in the future. I've got some different ships planned. Uh, the Mercury Protocol actually introduced the idea of some ships or carriers that you can actually move cargo mm. around with. And I have some ideas for how to integrate a few other types of ships that are ones that aren't cargo, but maybe like fighter ships and some of the other things that you can use in the game. So that's some of my ideas for uh, future expansions there. Nice. Okay. That, that sounds cool. Fra Frank, Frank Bones suggested a comic book or, or stories based on the setting. Any chance of that? I mean, you already said you used to do comic books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm working on a what I'm calling a digital storybook right now, uh, which will have some art with it and a bunch of different stories. Uh, a few stories I've had submitted from backers, a few stories that I've written, uh, some stories that actually my son wrote, uh, and just kind of collecting a bunch of these different stories of things happening during the Helionauts is basically the idea. And I'm going to try to string it all together and make a nice big storybook out of it with art and stuff like that. So that one should be really cool. I've had some ideas for a, a comic book version of it too, but my artist is busy dude these days so i don't know if that'll actually come <laughs> together or not but certainly the the storybook version of it yeah that's a cost of success isn't it <laughs> yes, get too busy. yes indeed yeah he's a wanted man now <laughs> is he going to be doing the art for for your other stuff is that the plan now he is yeah well he's definitely going to be doing the art for festival um which is the one i'm working on with uh the other guys uh that the other guys designed here locally and yeah i've got plans for some other artwork for him too so the only other question I have or comment was also from Frank. I asked him if there's anything he wanted to know, and he he said he'd like to hear more about the the setting, the backstory, and all that. And I think he kind of covered it. Is there anything else, any other interesting details that you would add? Um, yeah, that's uh, that's most of the background kind of information. Uh, the kind of larger overarching story is, and I'll tell you this: this is kind of a preview of the uh, digital storybook. There's a character, kind of a central character, who sets this bigger thing in motion who realizes kind of the short-term nature of humanity in a sense and says we need an AI that can kind of shift the balance of our chances of, of surviving the Heliox. 
and be able to kind of monitor all the stuff that's going on almost to the point of prescience or like uh, foreknowledge of what's going to happen. So he, so this character designs this AI that can outlive any humans. And that's kind of this bigger theme that's going on. There's like this AI that's kind of pulling a bunch of strings in the background and setting all these things in motion. Some of the, some of the architects have interactions with this AI and some of them don't even know it exists. And so some of the stories kind of cross paths with this AI and there's all these different things going on throughout that. But yeah, it, it's, it's a pretty cool story. It's pretty big, big scope. Uh, kind of reminds me of like Isaac Asimov type stuff. So Every time, every time I hear about the the setting and the story of the world, I need mean, I keep imagining that the end of the world is going to be the Earth is shaking and this man puts his baby in a spaceship and sends him off to the planet Krypton or something like that. Yes, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it all comes full circle. I love it. <laughs> well, all right. Um, I don't think I have any other questions for you. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. Awesome, dude. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening.